0: Welcome to the Nemeth Report podcast. I'm Dr. Tammy Nemeth, historian and independent researcher, and I'll be your host. Canadians have been led to believe that transitioning from reliable, affordable, efficient hydrocarbons is relatively painless and won't really cost anything extra to the average person. Canadians have been led to believe their way of life would not really change either or be more expensive. They have been promised that the carbon tax will be Revenue neutral, whatever that means. But the federal government's own data shows that Ottawa took in more money from the carbon tax than it paid out in rebates. Not only that, the GST charged on the carbon tax is not rebated, which is extra spending money out of your pocket for Ottawa. So much for revenue neutral. These promises have proven to be empty, mere rhetoric to get Canadians to buy into paying more for living an average life. The carbon tax is a most damaging instrument contributing to growing inflation and taking spending power out of the hands of Canadians and putting it into spendthrift government hands. That money is often spent on programs, activist groups, or initiatives that directly undermine the Canadian economy and generate more energy poverty amongst Canadians. When the cost of energy is increased, it makes everything in life more expensive because energy is necessary to produce everything from the food we eat, such as fueling tractors and the fertilizer costs, to the clothes we wear, to the devices we use. Everything. When energy costs go up, the cost of goods and services increases and inflation goes up. Like Europeans and the British, Canadians will likely soon have to make tough choices on whether to fuel their cars, heat their homes, or put food on the table. These are choices we shouldn't have to make. The current spike in energy prices, the cost of living and energy poverty, is driven in large part by government, from discouraging reliable oil and gas production and infrastructure to excessive taxation. These changes are not benign, nor are they altruistic. They serve to undermine and destroy our modern way of life and the hydrocarbons at its heart. Canadians must, must ask if this is an acceptable state of affairs. Joining me today to discuss the carbon tax and the growing energy poverty of Canadians is Chris Sims, the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thank you for joining me today, Chris, and welcome to the program. It's an
1: honour to be here. Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you. Um, Can you maybe begin by giving our listeners some background about yourself and how you came to work for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation?
1: Oh, sure. Uh, So I'm the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, I For the last 20 or so years of my professional life, I was mostly a journalist, uh, both mainstream and alternative, uh, largely uh, working in Ottawa on Parliament Hill, Uh, was running up there every single day most of the time to produce live shows. Uh, I also was one of the founding members of Sun News Network. I was their uh, reporter on Parliament Hill, and uh, later on, I was their Atlantic Bureau Chief. Uh, I'm from rural British Columbia, I love small towns, I was raised very blue collar and it's something that i really truly identify with and i've been working since i was about 12. (laughs) so um (laughs) it's one of those things right It, it gives me purpose uh and so being able to work for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is truly a dream job because we're a very small but mighty. Uh, we have a small team of directors from coast to coast, uh, but we have a massive standing army of supporters. It's more than two hundred and thirty thousand people across Canada, um, and we started wow. back in the ni- yeah. It's it's really great. I'm super blessed. Um, we started the CTF started back in the 1990s <laughs> before the internet even existed uh, as great clear <laughs> organizations. And so we're connected and dedicated to lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government. I personally like to squeak the word small into government as well, uh, but accountable will work for now.
0: That's awesome. You know, I've always been a fan of the debt clock, as I think most people don't realize just how much in debt our nation is and what the long-term consequences are in shouldering that debt over a long period of time. And to be honest, I I really appreciate the annual fuel tax report or gas tax honesty day that breaks down the level of taxation on the price of gas. Because right now I'm seeing on Twitter and various other places that they're trying to blame the oil companies for the Mm -hmm. spike in prices where, you know, there's such a large chunk of what we pay is tax. And so I'm always really grateful for that. And I, I love to see those those reports come out every year.
1: Well, we really like doing them, and it's exactly for that purpose. So it raises awareness. Uh, it's funny you mentioned the debt clock. Um, the Trudeau government broke our last debt clock. It was f- <laughs> a physical. Tra- it, they did. It was. It was a physical trailer. It looked really similar to like a horse trailer, um, but we had actual physical numerical digits inside where you usually see the windows. But we ran out of room. Because, of course, we are more than a trillion dollars in debt now. So it clocked over to one extra digit and we didn't have room. So we had to buy this big uh F450 uh, panel truck. It looks like a moving truck and it's got massive LED uh, display screens on either side of it. You can see this thing from space. <laughs> and, um, oh, my we're actually, gosh. <laughs> yeah, I know it's wild. I just got in off the road like the other night. Like from driving this thing with Franco Teresano. Um He is somewhere between, like, near the borderlands of Saskatchewan and Manitoba right now. Um, we're trying to get to Ottawa on time for the for the budget. So thank you very much for, for following along. Uh, we really need to raise the alarm over the deficit and the debt.
0: Will, will you be able to park your truck by the parliament buildings now that there's all these new regulations about trucks parking?
1: Mm-hmm. Isn't that a good question, right? Uh, so. Having walked and biked and driven all around that parliamentary precinct for most of my adult life, there are camera angles that you can still get. I'll put it that way uh with parliament hill in the background so we'll be being very creative uh we used to be able to park right in front of the thing and here in in british columbia we rolled up right onto the legislature grounds uh with permission of course um but we used the back side of it because it was much easier uh and not have to deal with anybody else being out front Um, most of the time clerks of parliament hills and legislatures are pretty good about allowing for free expression. Uh, I'm not sure how well it's going to work in Ottawa, but fingers are crossed.
0: (laughs) Well, I hope so, especially um, for April 1st and whatever, whenever they decide to bring down a budget. Um, So I, I would like to just kind of get to the the carbon tax and the energy transition. And like I said in the introduction, you know, it's being sold as this painless switch from one form of energy to another with little difference in cost to the average consumer and citizen. But this is, you know, proving not to be the case. And I think um, you guys had a, a press release this morning or yesterday about the new parliamentary budget office and and yeah. their numbers for the carbon tax. And Um, What do you see as the implications of a net zero transition for how people live in Canada? Uh, The carbon tax is a central component of it. It's not the only thing, but, you know, it's being sold as a way to wean us off oil and gas and and to help fund all of these sort of um, renewable technologies and all these other things that they want to shift or nudge people's behaviors into this new way of living. Um, what do you see as the implications of all this for how Canadians live and and their cost of living?
1: Well, it's going to be painful. Um, And I mean this earnestly. Unless, um, and hey, things happen. Uh, There are smart geniuses out there who make Eureka-level discoveries. Unless we discover some dilithium crystals, uh, I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan, um, (laughs) anytime in the near future, um, and they keep on going down this route, of strangling oil and gas and demonizing our natural resources and making us pay right through the nose, uh, we won't be able to afford it. I'll be really blunt. Average working people will not be able to afford uh, getting to work or heating their homes. And I can say this uh, with personal experience. Uh, I lived, like I said, in Ottawa for many years. I was even a talk show host there. I was mostly the producer, but I was the host many times. And that was back when then it was the Ontario Liberal government under Dalton McGinty and Kathleen Wynne. They had done so many bizarre, crazy deals uh, to the Ontario hydro system that they made hydroelectricity unaffordable for average people. Right. And so I'm talking just to give you a personal example. We we had a very small 3 bedroom bungalow. Very, very modest uh, and we, we paid natural gas for the heat. Okay. So it was just the lights and I was doing laundry at midnight sister. I was being super <laughs> careful trying to do off peak um, and our, our hydro bill was still more than $400 a month. And, oh, my gosh. Yeah. And that was on the low end of things for during the height of this crisis. When I was hosting, I was getting folks who were calling in, bless their hearts, um, who had older homes or who had to rely on electric heat, which makes me want to faint thinking about the price there. Um, Older folks who were literally like taping off parts of their homes and staying in one room, like, because that's energy poverty. And you don't need to take it from me. Uh, You can take it from the Ottawa Food Bank who are about as kind and altruistic as you get to help folks out, they're the ones that really started pushing the term energy poverty. And how did they get there? Well, in part, it's because they inked insanely unfair deals with so-called renewables. I'll give you an example. Say for argument's sake that the rate of power, the typical market rate of power was, say, 2.5 cents per kilowatt hour. Okay, that's for your average hydropower. So, you know, the Niagara Falls dam, all the other sources of power that they typically used in Ontario. Okay, they signed deals in some cases, 30 years long with solar companies and wind wind companies for 80 cents a kilowatt hour. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was bizarre. (laughs) Guess who's eating? The other 77 cents that they're overpaying, the consumer, of course, the user of electricity for power they never used in the first place. This was simply a bizarre uh, Green New Deal that they shoved through onto Ontarians. Now, a lot of those same folks huh, have moved up uh, you know, to Ottawa and they're heavily influencing this government. And it's one of the reasons why we're going to see the carbon tax jump up to $170 a ton within the next eight years. And to be real clear, I got it directly from one of the uh, draftsmen of the current carbon tax legislation, a Liberal Party insider, who said that the carbon tax is, quote, punishment. He used that word, punishment for the poor behavior of using oil and gas.
0: Wow. So so quite often I hear that in the activist literature and in research papers done by what I would deem activist researchers, that it, it is about punishment, that it is about moving behavior, changing behaviors to get off oil and gas and to make it painful for people to continue with the current way of life that that they want to force these behavioral changes and and they want to do so using the the hard hammer of government regulation and taxation to do it and i'm re- i'm glad that you guys are are trying to call out the government on this but do you feel like you're You're sort of blowing into the wind here that like, are there enough people who who are aware of it? How do you how can you improve getting the message out? What can Canadians do to resist this?
1: That's a great question. Uh, I I sometimes wonder if I'm yelling into the void. Um, I think, unfortunately, uh, most Canadians are now seeing it uh, in their bills period um they take a look at say their natural gas bill or even some a lot of folks still use propane especially out in rural areas people forget yeah that. for sure and yeah. in the atlantic canada there's a lot of folks especially elderly people who still use actual furnace oil uh in parts of nova scotia and stuff so um when they, i i once said one time on a radio interview hey folks send me your heating bills like physically take a picture of it and send it to me i'll obviously not share your name or address and whatnot but i want to see what the carbon tax ding what the carbon tax bill is on those bills i was i was expecting like a handful of bills from people who were listening and who were able to get to their computers and remember and all that stuff my inbox is flooded I had pages like, you know, when you're scrolling through your Gmail, you're clicking (laughs) I had pages of them. Um, And some of the prices were just staggering to me Uh, in many cases, especially here in B.C., uh, which is more temperate in the south coast. um, They were spending more on the carbon tax than they were on the actual natural gas fuel. And it just gets up there. And so unfortunately, folks are going to have to realize, even if they don't want to. Uh, that this is going to be unaffordable very quickly. And it's only going to get worse. And I don't like being like this. I like being the happy warrior. I don't like being the bearer of bad news. But if it's tough now, it's going to get much tougher, much faster. Because right now, April 1st, federally, our carbon tax is going up to $50 a ton. Okay? So that's on about 11 or 12 cents per liter of gasoline, to give you an idea. Okay? That's the first carbon tax. So number one, that first carbon tax within the next eight years is going to go up to one hundred and seventy dollars a ton. That translates to thirty seven cents per liter of gasoline. On top of that, I know on top of that, the Trudeau government is introducing a second carbon tax. What's the second carbon tax? Well, we've had it here in B.C. for years, and on average, it adds 17 cents to the cost of a liter of gasoline and 19 cents to the cost of a liter of diesel that's right now and so the true government looked at that and said oh that's a really spiffy idea let's do that across canada and they're in uh, imposing that around december as last we heard and it's a form of a fuel regulation that makes energy costs more and so that's going to be coming in in december we think it's going to start at around nine cents a liter so my point here is is that if you think it's expensive now for the carbon tax it's going to get exponentially more expensive very soon unless we stand up together as canadians and say stop we have to say stop so is that possible
0: i mean if Canadians stand up like they did with the freedom convoy mm-hmm. and say you know what this is all ridiculous and and then to push back with the carbon tax and all this excessive taxation just one layer upon another layer upon another layer will will they get smacked down <laughs> the way the freedom convoy was and and what can we do to help um people realize that they do have power that they that they can stand up and say no
1: I just want to reach out right now to the person who feels that they're powerless. You're not powerless. You're not. Um, Let's just take the, the convoy, even just out of context and look at the results. Before that started happening, think back to what it was sounding like in December, late December, early January we had all of these mandates we had all of these lockdowns we were spending billions of dollars uh, trying to lock down businesses and thinking that we can just continue to do this forever and ever and not bankrupt ourselves they were talking about a vaccine tax a form of forcing people to get it as we had seen in places like austria and now look like it's it's reversed itself that, at least know, provincially, right? Yeah, because federally they haven't changed
0: anything. So well, uh, provincially, also,
1: feder- also federally, you might have noticed that the leader of the opposition has changed. Right. So true. True. Yeah, and and that's just not, you know, even apart from, you know, the con- trucker convoy and whatnot. Um, look at the results that have happened there because. Our people within the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, like I mentioned, it's about 235,000 supporters. We survey them all the time. We say, what do you you want us to focus on? You know, we have finite amount of energy and people and hands on deck. What do you want us to what fire do you want us to put out best and most? And it's almost always the top answer is carbon tax. And so that's why we go loaded for bear on the carbon tax. And guess what? Every single one, as far as I remember, of the former leadership candidates last time around for the Conservative Party signed our pledge. They said that we will scrap the Trudeau carbon tax and we will not impose a version of our own. That was very clear. Well, the person who won that leadership very quickly turned around and said just kidding we are putting in our own version of a carbon tax but we're not going to call it a tax because we think that you're too dumb and that you'll understand when we say price or fee or levy or whatever well fortunately uh folks aren't that dumb and they realized this was a massive broken promise and frankly as far as i understand it's one of the reasons why candace Bergen is the current interim leader there so i just want to encourage folks who are listening right now who think that nothing ever changes nothing ever do matters that's not true i understand why you feel that way trust me i do but if you step back and look at it we re- can realize that we have affected great amounts of change in a very short period of time. So I encourage you, you pick up that phone, you send that email, be polite, please. Otherwise, you'll be ignored. But be firm and be tenacious. Call them, like, call them once a week if you want to. Email them, you know, twice a month. <laughs> no, seriously, they're, you're, you are their boss. If they're an MP or an MLA, you're their boss, you're their employer. And you tell them that these issues matter to you and you will see some change.
0: That's a really important point, especially for, you know, you're supposed to be in constant contact with your representative throughout their term of office. I mean, yep. it's not like you just go on that one day and vote and and then you're supposed to walk away and not give any feedback. I mean, we do have an obligation and a responsibility and right as citizens to inform our representatives of whether doing a good job or not, right? So it's you're right. It's important for people to to give feedback to their elected representatives so they know whether or not they're they're on the right track or not.
1: It's so true. I don't know if you garden, um, but just, you know, throwing in your vote once every four years or so and walking away and not keeping an eye on it. That's like planting a whole bunch of seeds or putting in some you know annuals in your garden and then leaving like for months and months <laughs> and months. If you go back and not weed it gonna... or anything, exactly. exactly. You have to maintain it's... your garden. Tend it. You got to pull the weeds. You got to aerate the soil, sister. You got to give it some sunsh- sunshine. And that's the accountability factor. So you got to really tend that garden. And uh, yeah, we got to make sure it doesn't overgrow and strangle all of us. So this is what that's I encourage good- everybody to do
0: good analogy. Um I know you have to run but I just wanted to get your impression on one last thing, you know. Sure. The current energy crisis has put into relief the threat to energy security from this green transition. But the government seems to be doubling down on these regressive and oppressive policies and the media seems to be giving it all a pass. As a former, you know, media representative, what do you make of that and is there a way to get the media to maybe come on the side of the consumer and the citizen and the energy poverty that's that's been a result of all these things. What can we do to help the media wake up and maybe cover this?
1: Oh, man, uh, I could do hours on that topic. And so we'll have to do that (laughs) another time. But very briefly, very similar to what I said about elected representatives. So I've worked in both, you know, that, that government office, very short period of time and much longer period of time, that newsroom. Phone them, Phone them. Like I said, be polite, please. If you start ranting and stuff, obviously, they're going to hang up on you because you sound like a nut job. So be polite, but be firm and say, I noticed you only covered this side of the story. What about this, this and this, or this is how this policy is affecting me and I am not. This is the key phrase. I am not seeing my experience being reflected in your coverage. Because that really hits to the heart of journalism. I can still consider myself a journalist. I love journalism. I've been telling stories since I was a little kid. Um, It is our responsibility as journalists to be a mirror and to be a gatherer of facts. And if we're failing on the w 5s who, what, where and why and, and when, and if we're failing on being a good mirror for us to all reflect upon ourselves and to capture our stories within then we're failing as journalists and so i would encourage you uh to kindly but firmly phone the newsrooms send an email say hey i'm i'm your viewer for this long i'm your listener for this long i'm not being heard by you and i expect better so that's the carrot okay we also have a stick okay our stick is, is that we want to defund the CBC. It's $1.4 billion per year. It's a massive expenditure and folks that we hear from constantly say what I just said. I'm not being heard now. That doesn't mean it won't exist because they still make money on their advertisements and, and donations and things. So that's clear. But they don't need taxpayers' money anymore. Number one, we can get a lot of that information from other sources. And number two, they can manage on their own. They can figure out a way to do that great CBC radio of old uh, to really tell those stories culturally of Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Uh, they don't need to be a massive, bloated megacorp with desks that cost who knows how many tens of thousands of dollars, four anchors or what it is, and dismal ratings. Uh, It's a massive waste of money. And if we did that, okay, and we stopped the so-called media bailout, which is about $600 million last we checked for people outside of the CBC, that would go a long way. So there's carrot of phoning and saying, hey, I'm appealing to you as a viewer and a friend um, and a constituent in that way, and I'm not being heard. And there's also the stick. So you can go sign our petition for that.
0: That's excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know you have to run and I'm hoping we can have another chat um, maybe in a few weeks after (laughs) after the April 1st tax day or, or whatever. But yeah, I'd love to chat with you again about these issues. And thank you very much for taking the time with me today.
1: Thank you so much. It's been great. Thanks, Chris.